0: chapter of Romans. I want to take a few moments by way of review to uh, just kind of cover some territory we've already covered, just to review it. The whole point is to bring, again, into a little clearer focus, hopefully, The present section that we're studying in the fifth chapter of Romans. Some of you have not been with us for the past year and a half as we've been studying, making our way through Romans, but many of you have been with us faithfully. (laughs) And I just, by way of a review and reminder, I want to have you catch the The flow of Paul's thought up to this point and see how this chapter, which is a very critical chapter to understand, fits in his flow of thought, and how masterful he is as he designs and writes uh, the book of Romans and what his purpose actually is, what he's trying to convey to us. You can think of the uh, book of Romans literally as um, the gospel according to Paul. It's his statement of the gospel in great detail. It's the absolute definitive word. It's the last word on the the statement of Christianity. He's not writing to solve any problems in the church, as he does in Galatians, as he does in uh, Corinthians and Colossians and so forth. He is writing to convey in great detail, very carefully, the gospel what God's plan is all about, what God is doing, and how men fit into his plan. Now, he's written it to the church at Rome. As you know, Paul was a church planter. He was a missionary. Uh, The church at Rome, he did not plant. He didn't start that church. We don't know, really, who did. All we know is a church showed up in Rome. And Paul has wanted to go to Rome for a long time because as a missionary he wants to carry the gospel even further west on into Spain. And if he can get to Rome, he can use Rome as a base of operations. He can make sure that the gospel is spelled out clearly to the church at Rome because Rome is the center of the known world at that particular point in history. It's the capital of the Roman Empire. And everything goes through Rome. And so if the gospel is firmly planted in Rome, Paul knows that the gospel will be spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And so there's great wisdom in the strategy on Paul's part to get to Rome. But before he can go there, and he tells us early in the first chapter after he's identified himself and and, uh, given a salutation to the church there at Rome, he tells us and tells them that he's longed to see them, but he's been prevented from getting there for some time. Part of the reason also for uh, going to Rome, as I had said, was that he wants to go further west, but he wants to have them have this letter so that when he arrives, he won't get beat up. He won't get chased out of town. If you read the book of Acts... Every town that Paul goes to preach the gospel, he gets attacked. There are some people who receive him with uh, great joy in the beginning, but then the Judaizers follow on shortly thereafter, and Paul always ends up getting chased out of town, getting beat up, getting stoned. uh, Terrible things happen to him. So he figures, if I write these guys a letter, and and they, they have a word from me, maybe when I get there I'll have a nicer reception than... Than in the previous cities. So there's lots of reasons for him writing this letter. He says uh, that he's not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 16. This is an astounding statement. It's not only that he's not embarrassed to preach it, and that certainly is a major consideration, but when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. I think it is absolutely the greatest thing going. It is great news. It's the great news of God. I'm not ashamed of it because it's sufficient for every need. It's sufficient for all men. It's sufficient to deal with every problem man struggles with. And it's sufficient to set men free. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Powerful statement. And now as he begins to, before actually he tells us the good news, he has to tell us the bad news. Now, you have to go with Paul's flow of thought here. In the first chapter from verse 18 uh, through chapter 3, verse 20, he tells us the bad news. He says there's some bad news, and I've got to tell you the bad news before I can tell you the good news. And the bad news, he says, is that God is pouring out his wrath from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So God's pouring out his wrath. That's bad news, would you say? And not only against the incredibly wicked people of this earth, not only against the totally immoral, the despicable people, God is pouring out his wrath, he goes on to say in the second chapter, against all those people who are trusting in their own personal human righteousness, their own self-righteousness, the fact that they and their own actions in life are justified before God. They don't need Christ. That's their thinking. God's pouring out his wrath against the wicked and against the self-righteous. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say God is pouring out his wrath against even the religious people. And he uses the Jews as the Classic example, the illustration of the religious people of his day. All of those people who are trusting in ritual and ceremony, in rules, in law, the fact that they attend church or attend the synagogue, just the fact that they've been baptized, none of that is going to save a person from God's wrath. And the whole bottom line, he says toward the end of the third chapter, he says that the, the whole world is held accountable to God, that every mouth may be shut everybody's in the same boat. He goes on to say that there's no difference, for all have sinned. Now, he's got to give us the bad news. He's got to to tell us that, that everybody's in the same boat. Nobody escapes. And he takes two and a half chapters to do that. And then in the space of five verses, verse 21 through 26 of the third chapter, he gives us the good news. He said, you can escape God's wrath. You can be free from the power of hell and sin and death by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Very simply. That's the good news. Jesus will free you. Jesus will save you. Jesus is the source of life. You can escape God's wrath. Now, he says, you put your faith in Christ. He introduces the concept of faith now. He's given us the bad news, then the good news. The good news comes by faith, by believing. And to underline that, he writes the fourth chapter of Romans. In the fourth chapter, he uses Abraham as his example of a person who believed God and who was justified by faith. Abraham is the classic example, the classic illustration of a person who is righteous before God because he believed God. Not because he obeyed the law, not because he was a good person, Not because he did all these good works was he justified. He was justified solely and simply and purely because he believed God. And Paul writes the whole fourth chapter to help us understand that. It's by faith and faith alone. Now why is this so critical? Why is this critical to understand? Because we as human beings are so conditioned to earning things from one another, to earning respect, to earning uh, credibility, to earning uh, being loved, being accepted. In every one of our relationships, we put conditions on people. And unless they meet our conditions, we are not going to be gracious and loving and accepting to them. Can you relate to that? We do not love people unconditionally, just for them. We hate them unconditionally, just for them. It's easy to despise somebody just because they are who they are. It's easy to get in a conflict with somebody just because they are who they are. It's not easy to do the opposite. But you see, with God, God loves us just because we are who we are. He loves us in spite of ourselves. He wants to give us salvation as a free gift, and the only way we can receive that is if we believe him. Nothing we can do can earn his grace. Nothing we can do. We don't even deserve it. And so Paul writes that fourth chapter, the question will come up because of our condition, because we're so used to earning stuff from one another. The question comes up, well, are you sure believing is sufficient? Shouldn't it be believing plus something? I mean, believing is so intangible, isn't it? Faith is such an intangible kind of a thing. It'd be, I'd feel much more secure if I knew that I could do works. If God accepted me on the basis of my being a good person, that would really help me. No. No. Oh, I feel so insecure. I feel so insecure. You tell me it's just by faith, I just, just believing God accepts me and makes me righteous? And in response to that question, in response to that dilemma, Paul writes the fifth chapter. And then he goes on to expand the fifth chapter into the sixth chapter, the seventh chapter, and the eighth chapter. Paul takes four chapters out of this letter to assure us That when you believe God, his grace, his saving grace, is at work in your life not only to save you, but to keep you saved. Now there are some people in our congregation who are having a hard time with this whole issue. The issue of eternal security. And I understand that. There were people in Paul's time when he preached who had a hard time with eternal security, who had a hard time with grace. Paul went around teaching God's grace, that we're justified by faith through grace, not through keeping the law. If you read the book of Acts, you see how Paul is chased out of city after city after city, how he is beat up, how he is stoned, how he's left for dead, how he's incredibly rejected. And why? Because he's teaching grace. It's the legalists of Paul's day who do not understand and cannot receive grace who attack him. And it's the same problem in the church today. If you have a hard time with eternal security, if you have a difficult time, with grace and understanding God's keeping, saving grace, then you probably are also a legalist. That's the fruit. And it's vitally important that as we study this fifth chapter, and when we enter into the sixth chapter, and see the seventh chapter and the eighth chapter, that you come to a place of assurance of your salvation if you are born again you are born again period and i want to reaffirm that to you this morning vitally important and if you have a hard time with it then you've got to sit down and meditate on these passages you must do that otherwise you're operating in a legalistic mentality And you're never going to experience the joy, the true joy and peace of God. You're never going to be able to rest in his grace and experience the full benefits and the full joy that comes from understanding not only that you are forgiven, but that you are made righteous. And have your life just absolutely overwhelmed by those truths. Astounding. This fifth chapter has been dramatically life-changing in my own life, as I've studied, especially the last half of it. Now, you remember, we started off the fifth chapter. Paul says, because we've been justified, we now have peace with God. And if you remember back to when we studied that verse, the whole idea, we have peace, that's in the perfect tense in the Greek. It's done. It's finished. We have it perfectly. Not imperfectly, not partially. We have peace with God. We're at peace with Him. He goes on to say that we stand in grace. We stand immersed in God's grace, and we stand there perfectly, not imperfectly. We stand, we have God's grace in abundance. He goes on in the latter part of that fifth chapter to tell us that, that, listen, God saved us when we were at our absolute worst, when we were His enemies, When we were vile sinners, that's when God saved us. Well, if he saved us when we were at our worst, don't you think he can keep us now that we're better, when we're not what we were? That's the whole argument of Paul in the the middle part of the fifth chapter. You have to be able to see this and grasp and take comfort in the assurance that Paul is giving that when you're saved, you're saved. And then he pens the most masterful argument when he gives us the example of Adam, the comparison between Adam and Christ. In Paul's mind, if he can help the church understand how they were born in Adam, how they had sinned in Adam, verse 12, if the church can grasp that, then chances are they'll be able to grasp how they are in Christ once they've been born again. How they're taken out of Adam and put in Christ. And to that end, he draws that illustration from verse 12 through verse 19. And he gives us some comparisons, not only the similarities, but comparisons. Read with me verse 12 once again, quickly. Paul says, Therefore, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Those three words are monumental. He says every human being sinned in Adam. When Adam disobeyed God, when he sinned, Adam was the human race. The whole human race sinned in Adam. You and I sinned in Adam. Every human being who would ever be born sinned in Adam. That's a vital point to understand and to grasp and to um, uh, take ownership of. That's the reason for our condition. We sinned in Adam. Now verses 13 and 14 are a commentary on verse 12. They go a little further to explain what he's saying in verse 12. And basically he points to the reign of death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the penal consequence of of sin is death. He says between the time of Adam and Moses, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, came in with Moses, did it not? Between Adam and Moses there was no law. God had not given the law. And yet people died during that space of time. Why did they die? Because the wages of sin is death. They died because they were sinners. They didn't die just because they had a sinful nature. They died because they sinned in Adam. They were born sinners. When infants die, they don't violate the Ten Commandments. They die because they're sinners. That's how God looks at them. They're born sinners because of Adam. In Adam, every human being sinned. Do you understand the reality of that? Now, follow this closely. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to understand and to grasp. From verse 15 to verse 17 now, Paul uses these verses to illustrate what he says at the end of verse 14. At the end of verse 14, he tells us that Adam was a pattern or a type of of the one who was to come. Who was the one to come? Christ, Jesus Christ. And so Adam somehow was a picture, was a type, gave us some insight, some understanding, and we talked a couple weeks ago about the similarities, how similar how they were similar in type. But verse 15, 16, and 17, and in some degree in verse 18 and 19 also, give us the um, typology by comparison or by contrast that Adam did this. And and what Adam did resulted in this. But much more what Christ did resulted in this over here. That's the essential contrast. I want you to look with me at verses 18 and 19. Now, are you following the flow of Paul's thought? He writes this letter. He acquaints the church at Rome with who he is. Tells him he wants to come visit him. The whole purpose is to preach the gospel. But before he can tell him the gospel, he's got to tell him the bad news. He's got to set him up. You can't appreciate good news unless the first bad news has really impacted you. Isn't that true? People come to you and say, boy, I got some really bad news. You say, oh, great. But after I got the bad news, let me tell you the good news. Oh, okay. So you appreciate good news a whole lot more after the bad news has really impacted you. So he gives them the bad news. Then he can tell them the good news. But once he tells them the good news, he tells them that, that they can only receive the good news by faith. Then he's got to go on and explain what faith is and give Abraham as an illustration of faith. And then he goes on to say, but let me assure you, faith is sufficient. It's not faith plus something else that you get saved by. Faith is sufficient. That's the reason for the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th chapters. You, are you, did you kind of catch his flow of thought? That's a thumbnail sketch of a year and a half's worth of study. Amazing. You think we could just do that in a thumbnail sketch, right? Verses 18 and 19. He's going to continue with his comparison between Adam and Christ. If you can grasp who we were and what the results of Adam's actions were and how they affected mankind, then you can grasp who you are in Christ and what the effect is or the result is in your life of what Christ has done. If you understand Adam's side, and if you see the comparison between Adam and Christ, then you can grasp the side of Christ. Verse 18, he says, Consequently, now he's going to summarize a little bit here, Consequently, just as a result of one trespass, how many trespasses? One. It didn't. God didn't wait till Adam sinned about ten or twelve times, did He? One. All it took is one. That gives you a view of God's uh, understanding or an understanding of God's view of sin. As a result of the one trespass, was condemnation for all men. Now this is this is significant. Somebody said to me, well, it doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. I mean, after all, if you go back in the book of Genesis and you read about the crime, all the guy did was eat a piece of fruit. If you went over to Lucky Market and stole an apple, and they arrested you and said you are going to go to the gas chamber, would the punishment fit the crime? No. But in this case, it does. God gave Adam one command. He says, don't eat from the, no- the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For so the day you eat of it is the day you're going to die. Awesome command, wasn't it? Oh, sure, piece of cake. I won't eat of that. No, no problem. But he does. By that one trespass, Not ten or twelve, it just took one to plunge all of mankind into condemnation. Now, if that's what Adam's thing would do, and it would affect all mankind, that one transgression, he goes on to say this, so also the result of one act of righteousness, one act of obedience... was justification that brings life for all men. Jesus Christ, in his one act of obedience, what was the one act of obedience? It was dying on the cross. That one act of obedience resulted in justification, resulted in God declaring men not guilty, and when God declared men not guilty, it brought men into life. Jesus is the source of life. He is the source of it. You know why Jesus had to die? You know why he had to go to the cross? Because he's the source of life. Let me read to you from John's gospel in the first chapter. Astounding verse. John's gospel, the first chapter. You don't need to turn there. Just let me read it to you. Think with me about these words. John writes this, verse 3 and 4. Through him, meaning Jesus, through him all Things were made through Jesus. All things were made. Now listen. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If Jesus wasn't around, nothing would be made. Now if everything was made through him then that which would be remade would have to be remade through him. Now, what's been remade? Me and you. We've been born again. We've been remade. And how how have we been remade? Through Christ. Don't you see what John's saying? Through Christ, through Him, everything comes into being. Everything is made. and Without Him, nothing is made. He's the source of life. He's the source of everything, Christ. John goes on to say, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Listen to what Jesus says in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. He's speaking to Martha. You remember Mary and Martha? Their brother Lazarus is laying in the tomb for three or four days, and they're frantic. Martha's frantic. And Jesus finally arrives on the scene after delaying several days, And Martha is just beside herself. And Jesus says to her, Calm down, Martha. It's going to be okay. He says that to us, doesn't he? When we're all upset. And he says, Calm down. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. That's what he says. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We'll have eternal life. I'm the source of life, he says. Then over in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, he says to Thomas, believing Thomas, he says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and life. You see, Jesus is the source of life. And it's through his one righteous act. If Adam's one act of transgression was sufficient to plunge all men into sin, then Christ's one act of righteousness is sufficient to take all men out of sin and make them righteous, give them life. Now, I need to say something about this verse 18. For years, I puzzled over one phrase in that verse, the phrase, all men. I can see and understand and follow Paul's argument when he says that Adam's transgression plunged all men into condemnation and ultimately death. Every single human being, all men. But then by comparison, he makes the analogy that Christ's one act of righteousness justifies and gives life to all men. Well, that poses a dilemma. It seems as though Paul is teaching universal salvation, that every human being is going to be saved regardless of what they believe. Do you see that in that 18th verse? I used to puzzle over that and puzzle over that. And then all of a sudden it became abundantly clear to me that Paul is just using that phrase, all men, to keep his analogy pure and consistent. What he really means is all men who believe are justified. And indeed, he says that in three or four other places in these early chapters in Romans. It's that this justification which brings life to men brings life to all men who believe, not just to all men indiscriminately. Now, make no mistake, Christ's death on the cross is sufficient. Is sufficient to cover all men's sins. Every human being's sin. But it is only efficient. There's a difference between sufficiency and efficiency. It's sufficient for everybody's, but it's efficient for those who believe. Do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? Vital, vital, because lots of people teach universal salvation and they get it out of the 18th verse of the 5th chapter because they say, well, it says right there, all men. No, no, no. You have to qualify it with the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture says all who believe are justified. Okay? Now look with me at the next verse, verse 19. We're going to look here again at another comparison, another contrast, but this time Paul is going to contrast the essential nature of each act. What was the nature of Adam's act compared and contrasted to the nature of Christ's act? He says this in verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. I want you to notice something. The essential difference, or the nature of each act, Adam's was an act of disobedience, Christ was an act of what? Obedience. 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 Adam disobeyed God, Christ what? Obeyed God. In fact, uh, he says in John's Gospel, the 8th chapter, he says, I, everything that my Father tells me I do, I say nothing on my own authority, only that which the Father shows me. Okay, he obeyed God. And Paul, in the second chapter of Philippians, says that he was obedient, even obedient unto unto death, even death on a cross, he says. And it was that one act of obedience that resulted in our life, resulted in us being made righteous. One act of obedience. Jesus kept the whole law, didn't he? He was born into this life, born into this world sinless. Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans he kept the law perfectly. Do you know what his baptism, remember when when Jesus came to the river Jordan and John was baptizing and John sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus steps down on the water to be baptized and John says, Oh no, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, No, no, it's the other way around. I need to be baptized by you. In order that what? that all righteousness be fulfilled. What was he referring to? The righteousness being fulfilled that he was referring to is this. If you go back into the book of Leviticus, into the Mosaic law, you read that when a sacrifice was going to be offered, just prior to to the offering of that sacrifice, the animal to be sacrificed had to be washed with pure, clean, running water. And Jesus says to John, it's very important that you baptize me. It's very important that I, the sacrifice, be washed by clean, pure, running water before I am sacrificed. That I fulfill all righteousness. He fulfilled the law in every detail. But his fulfillment of the law, his obedience Through his life, his whole life was an act of obedience. It wasn't how he lived his life that Paul is talking about. It was his obedience unto death, even death on a cross, that Paul is talking about. that's the one act, his death, on our behalf, that takes our sin. That's the one act of obedience that Paul refers to by which we are made righteous. Now let me ask you a question. In Adam through Adam's one disobedience all men are what? Sinners, are they not? Now let me let me help you understand something. Men are not sinners because they're sinful. Men are not sinners because they commit acts of sin. It's the other way around. Men are sinful and commit acts of sin because they are first sinners. They're born sinners. They have been made sinners. You see that word? You see that phrase in the 19th verse? They have been made sinners. Through that one act of disobedience. Every man has been made a sinner. Every man individually on his own is guilty and culpable before God. Every single human being is a sinner. And that's why we have a sinful nature. That's why we commit acts of sin. What do sinners do? They sin. A lot, don't they? Now I want you to see the glorious truth. And if you see this and can grasp it, it will set you free. Just as we were made sinners in Adam because of Christ's one act of obedience, one act of righteousness, we have been made what? What? We've been made... Say it. We've been made righteous. Now, how many are born again this morning? How many of you are born again? Raise your hand. Everybody that's born born again, raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are sinners? Raise your hand. No! (laughs) Go back to the 19th verse. When you were in Adam, you were made a what? You were made a what? Now that you're not, no longer in Adam, but you're in Christ, you are made what? Okay, let's do this again. How many are born again? All right. You're born again, how many are sinners? Praise God. You are righteous. Say it. I am righteous. Does it fit? Does it feel good? It feel a little awkward, doesn't it? <laughs> You're righteous. That's what the Bible says about you. If you are born again, you are righteous. You're not a sinner anymore. Now, I hear everybody's mind going, but. But we're going to get to the butt just a minute <laughs> before we can get to the butt, You have to buy in and understand that you're righteous. By what? The Bible says it. I don't feel it. You're not going to feel it until you first believe it. Until first you come to the point of saying, I I am in Christ, and in Christ I am what? Righteous. Righteous. I'm righteous. What do righteous people do? Huh? Righteousness. If sinners do sin, righteous people do what? Righteousness. Sinners do lots of sin, righteous people do lots of what? Righteousness. See how simple that is? Now, you know something? When you pray from now on, you don't go before God and say, Oh, God. Oh, God, I'm a miserable sinner. Oh, God. Because you're not a miserable sinner anymore. To call yourself and to think of yourself and to view yourself as a miserable, no-good, low-down, mangy sinner is insulting to God. Indeed, is insulting to Christ. Because if you're born again, you're no longer a sinner. You are in Christ, and you are what? Righteous. You say, oh God, thank you for the righteousness you've given me. Thank you for making me righteous. Now, you know why so many Christians have so so many problems? You know why so many Christians struggle so much with sin? Because they still view themselves as sinners. You all did, didn't you? Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. (laughs) You've got to start viewing yourself as God views you. And when you start viewing yourself as God views you, guess what? You're going to start doing what you're supposed to be doing. When you really begin to view yourself as a righteous person in Christ, you're going to be doing righteousness. God has given you a brand new nature. Unless you begin to see that nature. See, you just saying, well, I'm born again. That doesn't mean anything. Unless you really believe you're born again. Unless you really believe that old things have passed away. The new has come. You're righteous. You're not the same person anymore. You've been given a brand new nature. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe that. I am righteous. I am righteous. I am righteous. But I still sin. Yes. Yes, you still sin, but that doesn't affect your standing with God. You're no longer a sinner, you're a child. Paul says in the 8th chapter, a glorious thing, he says, the Spirit of God witnesses, testifies with my spirit that I am his child. How many are parents? Okay, let me ask you a question. When you, when you first had your kids, when your f- kids first obeyed, the first act of this means, the first no that came out of their mouth. Did you send them back where they came from? <laughs> I know you may have wanted to. But you didn't, did you? Did they, cease to no longer, did they cease to be your children? No. They're your kids. You got them. When Israel sinned in the wilderness... 40 years they rebelled from God. Did God send them back to Egypt? Did he send them back to where they came from? No. He continued to work with them. He disciplined them, didn't he? We discipline our kids, don't we? When you and I sin as righteous people, it doesn't make us back in Adam again. God doesn't send us back to where he got us from. He just keeps working with us, and he disciplines us, and he trains us up, and he raises us up according to his will and plan. He makes us better and better and better. You're not going to get better and better and better until you start believing that you are righteous and you're no longer a sinner. And that when you sin, it doesn't affect your standing with God. God doesn't kick you out of the kingdom. He loves you. He saved you when you were at your worst. And now that you're vastly better than that, don't you think he's going to keep if you have a trouble, if you're having trouble with this, you're probably a legalist, and I say that to you as an appeal to study the scriptures, to understand Paul's flow of thought. And then, in a couple of weeks, when we start the sixth chapter of Romans, don't miss that. The sixth chapter of Romans is just an absolute climax in his thinking on this whole issue of assurance of salvation. God has you in his hands. He has you in his hands forever. You're no longer a sinner. You are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for Jesus. Jesus. I thank you that you have my life in control. I thank you that you have made me righteous. I'm not righteous in my own strength, in my own ability, in my own talents. I'm not righteous by nature. God, you took a broken down sinner and made him righteous. You've done that for all of us, Lord. Thank you. Help us to understand that when we pray, we come to you with confidence and assurance as we approach the throne. We approach the throne as children, with joy and great excitement, unafraid, rejoicing in you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that we're no longer sinners, but that we are righteous in Christ. And Thank you, Father, when we do sin, when we do disobey, That you don't kick us away. You don't cast us away from you. Father, that you draw us close to you. Strengthen us. Discipline us. Grow us up. To make us more and more like Jesus every day. God, I thank you for Paul. I thank you that your Holy Spirit gave him these insights that he might pass on to us. That we might enjoy the great fruit of salvation in this life, that we might indeed begin to reign in life in the abundance of the grace that you shed upon us. God, we love you and praise your name this morning. We thank you for being our God. Now, before we close the service, there may be some people here this morning who came as a sinner. Maybe you didn't come this morning with knowing Jesus as your own personal Savior. The Bible says you're a sinner. The Bible says that eternal damnation is reserved for you in a place called hell. You may think right now, well, I don't believe that. Whether you believe it or not doesn't make it any less true. It's a fact. And down deep in your soul, you have a hunger and a longing to live. And God wants to fulfill that longing. He wants to give you life abundant eternal life forever with him, glorious life. And all he asks you to do is to trust Jesus, to believe in Jesus. You say, "Well, I have to give up this? Will I have to give up that? Yes, you'll have to give up a lot. You'll have to die. You have to humble yourself and put aside your pride and your ego and say, Jesus saved me. I see now that I'm a sinner. Now, if you came this morning as a sinner, but you want to leave today as a righteous person, with God's righteousness given to you, not human righteousness, God will make you right with him, and God will give you the entrance into eternal life. If you see and understand that you've been a sinner, that you've rebelled and rejected God, and your own pride and ego have been the source of your salvation, If you've seen that and you know now that you need Christ and Christ alone, then I'd love the privilege of leading you in a prayer. A prayer of repentance. And a prayer of acceptance of God's grace. But I need to know if there's anybody that wants to pray to be made righteous this morning. And if you want to pray, you can signal me just by standing up. So I ask you now, if there's anybody at all, just go ahead and stand right now. Praise the Lord, brother. Welcome to the family. Feels good to stand in it. Anybody else? Jesus said if you're ashamed of me and you won't confess me before men, I will not confess you before my Father in heaven. Don't delay. God's talking to your heart. You best stand. Let's pray. You make this your prayer. I'll pray it out loud and you pray along with me, okay? What's your name? Ray? Okay, Ray. Father, I come before you right now with thankfulness in my heart. You've spoken to me this morning. You've shown me truly that I am a sinner, or I was. Just by this mere act of standing, I acknowledge that everything you say is true and I believe you. And right now, I put my faith in Jesus as the sole source of of my salvation I understand now that Jesus took all my sin and all my guilt from before you and took it on himself he became the sinner instead of me and, and then he gave me his righteousness I understand now that I'm born again that I'm renewed, I'm made new and no longer am I a sinner but I'm a righteous person that I have your righteousness God I have eternal life. I'm going to live forever with you, gloriously, abundantly. God, I thank you for talking to my heart this morning. I love you, and I praise you. I ask you to fill me, fill me to overflowing right now with your Holy Spirit, that I might serve you faithfully all the days of my life, for your great glory, not mine. Thank you, Father.